This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our programming is made possible through the support of our members and friends. If you would like to make a donation to the center or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that it can aid one's understanding of a Dharma talk or Taisho if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Thank you for listening. I record these um, talks on this app, and it has a little interface with a that makes it look like a little tape player. I just wonder how many people actually use this, know what a tape player was. <laughs> it's been so long, you know. Just had that thought. What is those? What are those two little wheels doing? <laughs> Physical parts moving. <laughs> Whoa! Good morning. Uh, a few weeks ago, <clears throat> we talked about um, pain, physical pain mainly, and we focused on how the Buddhist teachings apply to phys- physical dealing with physical pain. And um, I want to go back to that a little bit, but now I'm focusing more on mental pain or emotional pain and how we work with that. So we're going to go back to the story of the two arrows, the Buddha, just as a reminder for people, um, those who have heard it, um, and also for, of course, people that haven't heard it. It's from a sutra, and this is just an excerpt from this very short sutra. And it goes like this. It says, the Blessed One, who is the Buddha, of course, the, the Blessed One said, When touched with a feeling of pain, the unrestricted, run-of-the-mill person sorrows, grieves, and laments, beats their breast, becomes distraught. So they feel two pains, physical and mental, just as if they were to shoot a person with an arrow and right afterwards were to shoot them with another one, so that they feel the pain of two arrows. And then um, later on in the sutra, it says, when the well-instructed disciple is touched by the painful feeling, he is not resistant. No resistance with regard to that painful feeling obsesses him. I'm I'm doing some conversion here because they always use him or his. And of course, it's very biased in that gender, in that way. So the two arrows, the physical, the first arrow that hits us, and then the second one of the, 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 the mental pain that we cause ourselves. So while the Buddha describes that first arrow as physical, you could say that it also refers to emotional or mental pain. Um, it, you know, it's, uh, you think of, for example, just getting cut off in traffic or, or finding out you didn't get the job that you wanted or, or something like that, um, uh, loss of a relationship. And that's that first arrow that hits us. So the second arrow is not only um, our reactions to that, but our reactions to our reactions. And this is a really important point that I think we'll get into. It's not, the second arrow is not, maybe you could think of it as actually a third arrow, or a fourth arrow, and a fifth arrow, you know, a whole quiver of arrows, right? 
that it's not just the second arrow of, you know, the, the, the anger that comes up when somebody cuts us off in the traffic. It's our reaction to that anger. Oh, I shouldn't get angry. Right? Or, I'm totally justified in it. Let me get even more angry. Um, we didn't get that job. And not only do we maybe get frustrated with that, but then there's the arrow of, um, I'm not worth it. I don't deserve it. So do you see how there's this kind of arrow after arrow? That second arrow becomes third, fourth, fifth. The 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 Buddha, or the, when we talked about this a few weeks ago, when talking about the Buddha's second arrow, um, we read from an article about this research that um, has been going on for quite a while, but that shows how our pain worsens as um, as we um, begin a negative feedback loop. We begin to worry about the pain. We begin to ruminate and obsess about our pain. And that, of course, tightens the muscles around and related to even um, unrelated areas in the body. And, and then um, those, that tightening creates more physical pain, which then leads to um, this negative feedback loop. And of course, what the Buddha is highlighting is this mental anguish or the ruminations that we put ourselves through as we experience pain in our life. And this second arrow is often much worse than the first arrow. Much more painful. Oftentimes when we get hit by that second arrow, it, it opens up, it, it opens up, or you could say with continuing the analogy, it hits old wounds that are still not quite healed. That second arrow often um, it exasperates uh, old uh, previous um, injuries, so to speak, injuries, so to speak, um, when it hits that same spot over and over and over again. Many of us, um, because of that, uh, many, of, many of us in early in life come to anticipate these arrows. We come to see and anticipate the pains of life, and so we get savvy about it. Um, not so much consciously savvy, but more, more, more uh, unconsciously, we begin to build our defenses, our shields against these arrows, against these pains. Of course, the most common and the most readily accessible for for people to think about is the. Uh, physical comfort, the material possessions, the um, shielding of our pain uh, by surrounding ourselves with wealth. Um, and this is what the Buddha was shield, shielded from by his father, right? He was surrounded by everything his father could think of so that he wouldn't experience these, uh, even the first arrows. He wouldn't. He wouldn't have any... Um, knowledge, experiential knowledge of these things. Of 
course, the Buddha saw how futile these shields were. And when he began his journey, that was his intent, was to see through these things. He gave up palace life, and he set out to find his freedom. But but he went about it in a way that actually caused him um, a great deal of pain. If you remember from his journey, what he did was he tried every practice in that he could get his hands on. You know, he he tried to squelch this pain of being alive through actually through meditation, through absorption in meditation. He tried to he tried to transcend the pain of life through. Uh, uh, samadhi through getting so involved in his practice that it would fade. And when that didn't work, he tried punishing his body. He tried every way to get his body to submit, to, to um, get beyond the, 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 the pain itself. Starving himself, trying all these punishing practices that were prevalent in India and which you actually still see today if you travel there. And of course, ultimately, he found that none of these things worked. And I think um, with enough experience through life, we too come to the realization that maybe through the teachings of Buddhism or practice of Zazen or other just pure life experience, we come to see that there's really no escape. It's, it's futile. Isn't, it, isn't that what, uh, on Star Trek, it was... Uh, resistance re, is futile. Yeah, resistance is futile. The Borg, right? Yeah. I'm glad some of you get that. <laughs> I, was, I was talking to... Uh, a teacher, a uh, friend of mine, um, Zen teacher, and he said, we were talking about um, managing a Zen center, uh, and he said, if you if you want the best role model for managing, management, watch Jean-Luc Picard from, from Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> so that's my, that's my practice now. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> So going back to what the Buddha said in the story of the two arrows, he said, when the well-instructed disciple is touched by that painful feeling, he is not resistant. And this is what part of our journey in practice is to wake up, to come to grips with, with the fact that there is no way out. In the sense that we might think there's a way out. Maybe there's another way out, but it's not the way we think it's going to be. As we practice, um, we may even begin to see how savvy or how clever our avoidance strategies are, these shields that I've been speaking of, how um, subtle they actually are. Because they were put into place so many years ago, and often when we're very young, um, 
and, and how they go on outside of our awareness many, much of the time. Occasionally, one, these, these strategies that we employ will become conscious and will just get, oh, just so surprised that we've been operating this way and we haven't noticed it. If you think about riding a bike, for example, when you hop on a bike, you, you don't think about, you know, your balance. You don't, it's not a conscious thought. You don't go, okay, and I need to turn my balance a little bit to the right or a little bit to the left, or I need to get the handlebars this way or that way. It's just, it's motor memory, right? So it's, so it's encoded in your body. And so much of the shielding that we do um, in our lives is, is encoded um, in the way we act, the way we um, resist, very subtle ways. And so um, it becomes automatic. And when somebody, for example, maybe a teacher, um, maybe a friend, maybe uh, a loved one, maybe a therapist or somebody points these things out to us, it's it often is like, whoa, that's just who I am, right? It's just, this is who I am. Because it's so close that we can't see it for what it is. We can't see these strategies for what they are. In, in, a, in the discussion we had a few weeks ago, at the end of the talk about physical pain, someone asked about, um, about mental pain about how to deal with that. You know, they, they said, I've got a handle on, the, you know, I can, I can work with physical pain. I can see it. I can, I can um, watch and often not get drawn into the, the reactions to it. But the mental pain, the moodiness, the irritability, for example, is where I really struggle. And... I think um, all of us can relate to that. As I began to think about that more from my own experience, my own moodiness, my own irritability, um, the origins of that, and from working with other people, what I've landed on through thinking about this is what I'm starting to call aloneness. Aloneness. And I distinguish this aloneness from loneliness. Uh, loneliness is, is a feeling, you could say. Uh, but aloneness is something that we do to ourselves. It's, it's, what it is is a cutting off. It's a cutting off. And what I'm realizing is that this actually perpetuates irritability and moodiness. Many of the thinking patterns which keep us alone and in our moods are very subtle, but there are these pervasive negative messages that we tell ourselves. And these are those shields, these more subtle shields, things like, um, I should just get over this. You know, the minute the first arrow of pain comes in and the immediate reaction is, I should just get over it. Or, I shouldn't be angry about it. 
It's immature. It's, it's unspiritual. It's childish. No one will understand, so why bother? I'll be embarrassed or laughed at or seen as silly. I don't want to take a risk. I may get hurt, abused, taken advantage of. I should, oh, here's one. I should be able to figure this out myself, right? All these things are what I, this, this aloneness, the way we cut off from our experience and pull back in. These are all second arrows, third arrows, fourth arrows. And all these tactics we believe help us, in a way, keep the strong feelings and reactions at bay from impacting us. Um, And in addition, we may believe that these things help to keep um, the additional discomfort of, of, of getting other people involved out. It works to keep people away. So these, 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 this deployment of these shields of aloneness really work to uh, keep stronger feelings down. But in that, really, these stronger feelings, what I mean is this life force inside of us. It keeps, us, it keeps that down, but at the same time we pay a price for that. And in that overall is a diminished life force, a diminishment. And that comes across as this constant mood, this low-grade mood. I found that this, this aloneness is especially common with meditators, believe it or not. People who tend towards introspection of going inward, It's because people um, that have a natural tendency uh, to want to meditate often are the same people that want to handle things by themselves. Of course, there's a strength to that, but there's also a price. And I, I think that oftentimes what we need in addition to more sitting more time on the mat and cushion is actually more time with others, more time uh, connecting. Because if we're not careful, the practice of meditation can collude with and reinforce emotional repression. It can reinforce emotional isolation, that shadow side if we're not careful. And it, it appeals to many people, Zen practice, because it, it, it can be seen as strong, silent, you know, strong, silent, um, um, calm. And most appealing, I think, is something... Uh, uh, most appealing about meditation for some people is that we're doing it by ourselves. We're doing it by ourselves. 
It can also allow us to take on, I've spoken about this a little bit before, it can allow us to take on spiritual personas. I was sort of categorizing these things, and so here's what I came up with. Um, Here's one. Uh, The Bodhisattva. Okay, The Bodhisattva, always putting others first. But they have a lot in their own life that needs attending. Another one is the samurai. Someone who's tough, stoic. They're responsive, but they're sort of emotionally distant. Um, there's the, here's a Zen one, the man or the person to be, the person of no rank. This is an old thing in Zen, by the way. The person of no rank. And this is the person who claims to have no preferences. You know, I'm good. I'm good with anything. Right? Meanwhile, inside, they're like, Urgh. That's a good one. Yeah, it is, right? <laughs> I'm sure all of us can relate to at least one of these. What the, what that person of no rank is doing is they're struggling with their own strong preferences. And then there's the calm one. Gentle, serene. And so this maybe appears above the fray. But inside there's a storm going on, oftentimes. So all of these, I'm sure you can think of your own, all of these spiritual personas that we can take on. And if we're not careful, these things can cultivate an aloofness, a detachment in our practice. And uh, in, in um, thinking about this, I came, thought of an old koan, um, which actually, coincidentally, um, is in one of the chapters we're reading today in our precepts class. And it goes like this. This is case number 154 of Entangling Vines, a book of koans. And it goes like this. There was an old woman who supported a hermit. For 20 years, she always had a young woman take the, the hermit, his food, and wait on him. One day, she told the old woman to give the monk a close hug and ask, what do you feel just now? The hermit, so she did this, the the hermit responded, an old tree on a cold cliff, midwinter, no warmth. So the girl went back and told the old woman, and the old woman said, for 20 years, I've supported this vulgar, good-for-nothing. So saying, she threw the monk out and burned down the hermitage. No warmth. No warmth. Midwinter. Stoic. No feeling. Calm. Right? This old woman doesn't buy it. She calls... Bull, <laughs> right? This is this is the danger of practice. Is that Zen becomes about detachment? Many many long time meditators uh, learn to ignore their internal states through what I like to call mindful inattention. 
mindful in attention. Because mindfulness can teach us to watch our thoughts and feelings as they fluctuate. And in doing so, we can learn to tolerate the coming and going of mind states and yet ignore what they're trying to tell us. And so what we can become is inattentive of what needs to be done. See, this is a danger that people don't talk about. I haven't read too much about this in terms of, of, of practice. Is Yeah, we learn to sit through the storms, the coming and goings of feelings and thoughts. Um, that has a power to it, to sit there like a mountain. But... We, we then we forget the, the very reason why feelings evolved in the first place. They evolved in order to tell us something. And if we're, and if we're ignoring those messages, then we're ignoring our life. So non-reactivity is an important quality, but it sometimes comes at a price again. We can learn to tolerate things that we shouldn't tolerate. And it can also, again, reinforce that tendency in ourselves to go it alone, to do it by ourselves, to not share with others what we're going through because we develop that strength to be able to do that. We can do it alone. So we often talk about these two sides of practice, of acceptance and change. People new to meditation often need to learn to accept more. Um, But I wonder if people who meditate quite a bit, who are experienced, uh, have to learn less about acceptance and more about change. How to practice change. This in itself can be a very powerful practice to look at our lives carefully, to look at our day-to-day, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute experience and tune into it and have an honest look at it and say, okay, this cannot stand. This, This has to change. Instead of, oh, I just need to accept, I need to accept, I need to accept. It's an age-old question. What should we, when should we accept and when should we change something? When should we accept and when should we look deeper? Of course, there's no formula for that, but some indicators that things might need to shift are moodiness, anxiety, fluctuations in um, the irritability or feeling cut off, feelings of self-blame or uh, stress. I've talked about that quite a bit, how stress, how if we're not careful, meditation can take away a certain amount of stress in our life. But then, of course, what happens is we still live that stressful lifestyle. So it's supporting the stressful lifestyle. Stress is there to tell you to stop getting stressed out. <laughs> it's not there to just get rid of, you know. You're not supposed to just quell it through through ignoring it or through meditating. All these are signs that something's off and that we should pay attention. 
one one thing that we should begin to pay attention to are those areas um, that are kind of semi-conscious, those those areas around the edges. I think most of us could maybe spend some time with what I'm getting at here. Think about these these sort of areas of our life that are in the what kind of vision is this? The peripheral peripheral vision. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're they're not front and center, but they're areas that we tolerate that go on. Um, and we don't really look directly at them. Something maybe that we've gotten used to that we shouldn't. Sometimes we, in order to do this, we need the help of other people. This is, this is part of the reason we have in this tradition, Doksan. Because it's a way to help us through things that we can't normally see ourselves. We can't see as clearly ourselves. Of course, coming to Doksan is in itself sometimes anxiety-producing because it stirs up all this, this, this again, this uh, wanting to be alone with our practice. And so uh, sometimes it's a wonderful way to test our practices to, is through relationship. Uh, with a teacher, with, or with you know, or simply just with family or friends or or somebody else in our life that really offers us that honesty and offers us um, the ability to reflect on these things. This is why sangha is the third treasure: Buddha, Dharma, and sangha, because practicing with others, ideally, you know ideally, um, allows us to uh, begin to work with each other to help us begin to see all those things that we may be blind to. Of course, it has to be done in a supportive environment. It can't just be done. Um, A lot of us have trust issues, to say the least. As we come uh, and we begin this inquiry process, um, and really that's what this is, right? This is an inquiry process. This is very similar to koan practice. You know, our, our thrust in koan practice is to investigate the koan and look at it from all different angles and to really see where, where we're limiting ourselves in, um, in our understanding of it. And this, of, of course, we are the koan. So this is really a koan practice. And as we begin this process of inquiry, um, I found that we begin to understand causation, this, this, this law of cause and effect of karma, in a very deep way. Because what we come to see is that who we take ourselves to be is... We, we come to appreciate more and more that we're simply a conglomeration of all of these habit forces. You know, for, for better or for worse, that's what we are. These shields, these ways of defending off that we've built up over time. And so we begin to appreciate how many of our present moment reactions are being called up from old code, old scripts, from our wish to control or our wish to avoid. 
And this in itself is a practice that can be proved, that can prove to be very, um, a very deep well to draw from. Of course, Zen is about waking up. And this includes waking up to all the ways that we perpetuate our own suffering. This, this, I think is fair to say this, that the practice of bodhicitta or the spontaneous wish for enlightenment can be applied here. Really, the bodhicitta is that wish to wake up from whatever dream state we're in. And it's waking up really from the belief that the status quo will, will pan out. That that oftentimes we buy into this idea on some level, not consciously necessarily, but some that if we keep going with the status quo, that eventually it'll just get better on its own somehow. It'll lead us in a different direction. But it doesn't. So. We have a few minutes. Um, I thought, uh, you know, we could open it up, see...